Well, good morning. Oh, that, that was great. Normally I tell you guys that was bad, but that was good. Uh, that was, we're just going to start off good. I'm really grateful that we had a snow day a couple weeks ago because I was scheduled to preach this sermon last week. Last week I dealt with, uh, my kids called it like the coughing fit that you would not believe. I'm, you can actually still get sick, not COVID. Did you guys know that? I am coming off of bronchitis, so I'm just going to tell you, I will cough today. All right, everybody okay with that? Um, we're continuing, continuing on in our series, and we're talking about battling these emotions. How many of you have ever dealt with anxiety in some form, worry, fear? All right, we're, we're going to do some, some honest soul-searching today. We're going to have some audience participation, but... My wife and I, the story goes, my wife and I had been married for about four years. We were living down outside of Philadelphia. I was finishing my bachelor's degree, um, and I was taking the final 15 credits that I had to take in order to finish my bachelor's degree. One of those courses, three of those credits, was in Greek. Now, if that doesn't cause you some anxiety, you've never tried to learn a nearly dead language. I was studying Greek. At the same time as I was taking those 15 credits, I decided it would be a really good idea to start taking three classes towards my graduate degree. So I was taking 15 credits of undergraduate work, and I was taking three graduate uh, classes at the same time, and I was working 40 plus hours a week at my job, which consequently was at the same college that I was taking all of these classes at. And I remember one night, going to this one class in the evening, and I remember on a break, walking back to my office, being followed by my classmates who obviously needed something from me for work. I remember going into my office and abruptly shutting the door right in their faces, crawling under my desk with the light off, and literally curling up into a ball. I was I was overwhelmed with anxiety, with stress, with fear. I heard them in the, <laughs> knocking on the door. I saw him go in there. I, I don't know where he's at. I, on the outside, for most of my life, I can look cool, calm, and collective no matter what's going on the inside. That, that's one of the things that I have as blessing or a curse. But in that moment, I was dealing with such anxiety. Such fear of how I was going to continue to function. Did you know that two out of three Americans, two out of three American adults say they are anxious? Two out of three, 67% of us. One out of three said, said they are more anxious this year than they were last year. And this study was taken in 2019, so pre-COVID. I don't know what the numbers are now, but I bet you... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. I bet you they're higher. When we look at the, the people who are 18 to 34, the numbers of anxiety, the numbers of stress, the numbers of fear skyrockets even more. And those of us who are on the other side of 35, we could say, oh, it's technology. Oh, they have to deal with so much more than I had to deal with. And while that may be partly true, Understand that there's a study that says 80% of life's most significant events happen to you before you turn 35. That's true of me. Before I turned 35, 
I made Jesus my Savior and Lord. I graduated from college and grad school. I did finish and I did graduate. I moved out of my parents' house. I got married. I had two biological kids. I adopted another child. I started two different careers, all before the age of 35. And if you're under 35, your anxiety level just ratcheted up a little bit, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I got so much that's going to happen. What do you worry about most? Let's have a little audience participation here. What do you worry about most? Your health. Anybody worry about health? Okay. What about work? I worry about work. I'm afraid, fearful of work. What about uh, family relationships? Okay. What, what about friends? I, I worry about my friends. I worry about, we don't have a lot of people with friends in here apparently. Um, I worry, here you go, this one will get a lot of us. I worry about money. All right, we got some honest people in, in the house here. How many of you raised your hands for all of them? <laughs> okay, some of you actually understand that most of us, we worry. We have anxiety. We are fearful of something. And often that feeling is involuntary. It's not something that we can even control. What does the Bible tell, teach us and tell us about battling this worry, this anxiety, the, this fear? You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, just stop it. Just stop being fearful. That, that's like telling somebody, that's like when your kid comes to you and says, I can't sleep. And you're like, just go to sleep. It doesn't work, right? It, it doesn't happen that way. And, and, and what sometimes happens is we who are fearful, we who are battling anxiety, we who are dealing with worry, we feel shamed, don't we? We, we feel ashamed. And, and often when we bring that to somebody, we feel shamed by that person. Do you know how many people get cured of their anxiety through shame? Zero. Nobody gets cured of their anxiety by being shamed for it. The Bible does give us insight. The Bible does give us direction. I I believe strongly that scripture, on top of uh, everything else, counselors, medication, those are helpful, but the Bible is our first line of defense when battling ideas like depression and anxiety and, and stress and fear. We need to understand, as we seek to overcome this fear and overcome this anxiety and this worry, that our worries identify our beliefs. It's a similar idea to what we talked about in the first week when we talked about our emotion reveals our devotion. But, but our worries, the things that we worry about, truly highlight and identify what we believe. We're going to be looking at a story found in Judges chapter 6. This is a familiar story if you're, if you're from the church or if you grew up in church, you've heard the story of Gideon. And we're going to highlight some of the, the parts of Gideon's story. But we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. And we're going to see what Gideon worried about and what he worried about highlighted what he believed. In Judges chapter 6 verse 11... We hear the story starts this way. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, 
where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, wheat is harvested in the summertime, and, and wine is harvested in the fall, and Gideon is working, but he's working in disguise. He's, he's actually working wheat in a wine press, and we're going to understand why in a minute, but that's a part of the story here. Verse 12 says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, coming out of the Christmas season, that greeting is similar or familiar to us, right? It sounds awful familiar to what we hear that Mary heard when Mary was, was addressed by the angel saying, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. See, God sees what's in us. God sees what he made us to be, not who we think we are. We self-identify ourselves, and that becomes our direction. But God sees who he made us to be. If you were there with Mary, when Mary heard that greeting, and you asked her, Mary, do you believe you're highly favored by God? And do you believe the Lord is with you? I would assume that she would have said, highly favored? No, describing someone else, you must be. I am just a teenage girl, but not highly favored. But in our story this morning, the angel tells Gideon who he is, even though he does not yet see that. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's a pretty bold statement, right? I mean, I got to be honest. I would totally be down with the Lord telling me you're a mighty warrior. That's a pretty cool description. But Gideon's response is almost blasphemous. He, he responds very aggressively to this angel. And, and to give Gideon some credit, at this point, he likely does not yet know that he is talking to the angel of the Lord. But he responds in this way in verse 13. He says, pardon me, my Lord, essentially saying, pardon me, sir. He, he does not actually address him in the way where he's calling him Lord, Savior, Jesus, God. He's saying more, excuse me, sir. But the Lord is, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. See, for years, the Midianites would sweep through Israel. They were described like a locust, a, 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 a plague of locusts coming in right at harvest time. And they would take all of the food. They would kill hundreds and thousands of, of the Israelites and in here, Gideon is saying, if the Lord is with us, where is he? See, for Gideon, the stories of Egypt were about 200 years previous. And so Gideon is saying, 200 years ago, maybe, maybe that actually happened. That's like us today talking about Napoleon or the Alamo with confidence. 
we know it happened, but we really don't know all the inner workings unless you're like some really, really good history buff. But that's where Gideon was at. He was looking back to 200 years, and for 200 years, his people had been experiencing this difficulty. In verse 14, the Lord turns to him and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Now, if we think about exactly how Gideon responded to the angel of the Lord, we can say, whoa, Gideon, easy. Like, this is God you're talking to. And, and it would be fully within God's ability to squash Gideon like a bug, right? Like, how dare you talk back to me? Instead, he turns to Gideon and he says, I know who you are supposed to be. And so I am sending you. I don't care who you think you are. I know who you're supposed to be. And so therefore, I am going to send you to save Israel. Our fear, the things that we fear about, the things that we fear over, the things that we worry about, and the things we're anxious for, they reveal what we believe about God. But it also, our fear also reveals what we believe about ourselves. Gideon thought and believed that he was insignificant. He tells us in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 6. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. That's who Gideon believed he was. He's a nobody. But God's response to him says, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I will be with you and will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. But God's response to what Gideon believes about himself is, I am with you. I am sending you. This is my problem, God says. I'm going to fix it through you. You are a mighty warrior. The first thing we need to do when we're overwhelmed with fear, the first thing we need to do when we're overwhelmed with worry and anxiety is to focus on who God is and who God says you are. Don't listen to the lie about who you say you are. Listen to who God is and who God says you are. <clears throat> Verse 17, Gideon replies, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And the Lord says, I will wait until you return. So Gideon went inside and prepared a young goat. And from an ephah of flour, which is roughly 36 pounds, in case you are curious, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. And he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. So Gideon brings out a lot of food. And, and remember, they're in a period of famine. So Gideon brings out 36 pounds worth of bread, a young goat, and broth, and the angel of the Lord says to him in verse 20, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. 
fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. When we think about how we overcome this fear, we focus on God. We focus on who God is. We have to ask the question, who is God? In the face of Gideon's fear, he realized two things about God. He realized that he was sovereign, meaning that he was totally in charge of every aspect of his life, of everyone else's life, and everything that's going around him. So he realized he was sovereign. He also realized that he was the Lord of peace, which that's a very interesting description and a very interesting realization that Gideon had because up until this point, Gideon was living in an environment where tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of his family members have died, have been slaughtered. And he is about to lead a nation and God is telling him to lead a nation to slaughter, leaving no Midianites alive, which is hundreds of thousands of people. And yet, he is described, God is described by Gideon of the Lord is peace. When we look at Gideon's life and we look at the time of Gideon, everything that Gideon realized about God is still true today. When you think about God, If I were to ask you, and you don't need to say them out loud, but in your head, think about God in three characteristics. What are the first three things that pop into your mind when you were to describe God? Gideon called him sovereign and peace. What are the first three things that come to our mind? Theologian A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. God is love, which is absolutely true, but he's also a consuming fire. See, people who are are bad tend to have a warped view about God. They emphasize certain qualities while ignoring others or denying others. Now, we don't have the time this morning where I can attempt to fully describe God to you, but When we think about who God is, trust me when I say, God is more than that. God is more than what you think. If you believe that God is wimpy, permissive, he's a God of love and no justice, then you're going to live your life however you want with no repercussion. And you're going to hurt yourself and others in the process. But if you believe God is angry, God is a wrathful, vengeful God, then you're likely going to turn your back to him and never return. Before this conversation, Gideon believed that God was uncaring or distant or likely didn't even exist. And he lived his life in that way. But now he begins to learn and understand who God is. And the more he learns, the less he fears. Who did God say that Gideon was? He was a mighty warrior. 
you know, in that moment, if we think about that moment, what is happening in Gideon's life, you might actually say, is God mocking Gideon? Gideon is cowering in a, a wine press threshing wheat. Is God mocking him? That doesn't sound like a mighty anything to me. But the image of God is in all of us. And, and we were made to be like God, and no one can understand that more than God himself. So who does God say that you are? If you're here this morning and you're just kind of checking out Bridgewater, maybe you got invited by a friend. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know what God says about you? He says you're blind. He says you're dead. You're deceived. And he even goes as far to say you're at war with God. And truthfully, there's more descriptions and none of them are good. But if you're here this morning and you've surrendered your life to Jesus and to God, he says about you that you're forgiven, that you're loved, that you're chosen, that you're free, that you're his child, that you're precious. We need to believe these things about God because that's what God says who we are. You might find yourself saying, I'm afraid, I'm fearful about my finances. Why? If we begin believing a lie, we might say, because I'm not sure God has my best interests in mind. That's kind of what it boils down to. We would never really actually say that. But we might say, I'm worried about my finances because I, deep down I, I'm always a failure. I, I always fail at things. Why can't I trust God? Why can't I trust God? If we, if we find ourselves worrying about our health, do we not trust God with our life, with our safety? Why can't I trust God? Maybe we begin believing a lie that God isn't paying attention to me. God doesn't care about me, so I have to worry about my health. When we look to overcome our fear, our worry, our anxiety, we need to focus on who God is and who God says you are. And the second thing we need to do, and this is going to terrify many of you, because it's we need to do something scary for God. You want to overcome your fear? Do something scary. Start overcoming it. Do something, don't do something courageous for yourself. The antidote to a fearful, self-centered person is not to be a more courageous, self-centered person. The antidote, the, the way to overcome that fear is to do something scary for God. Gideon begins to take baby steps in the same way. He started by obeying God within his own family. In Judges chapter 6, verse 27, we see that it says this, Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. He, he tore down and destroyed his father's altar and, and statue of Baal. He, he did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. And we continue on in those verses that the townspeople actually go to investigate who did this heinous act, tearing down this statue, this idol, this altar of Baal. And, and they land on Gideon, which kind of tells me that Gideon might have been a little bit smart doing it at night because he was fearful because they wanted to kill him. 
And Gideon's dad responds in a way where he says, he says to the crowd, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is really a god, he can defend himself whenever one, when someone breaks down his altar. Gideon had to do something scary for God, and, and he started at home. He started doing something scary for God at home, and we understand that Gideon needed to take that step on a local scale before God could put him in the position to, to do something scary for God on a national scale. If you want to be a courageous person, overcoming your fear, your anxiety, your worry, start with what's right in front of you. What is facing you in your life right now that is something that you can do something scary for God? And, and understand that feeling afraid is not a sin. If you find yourself fearful of something, that's not a sin. But what becomes a sin is when it keeps you from doing something that is right. There have been times when I'm afraid to pray with my wife. When I've, I'm afraid to call my family together and say, we're going to do family devotions. Why? Well, I don't like to hear complaining. Oh, we have to sit at the table. My kids are here right now, so they know it's true. I want to be known as the fun dad. But yeah, let's just sit out and watch TV while we eat. The nice dad. Maybe you're afraid to come to church or you know someone's afraid to come to church. I often encourage people to watch online before they come. You know why? It's less scary. Maybe, maybe you're looking at your neighbors and you're afraid to go next door and invite them to come to church. Josh, I've lived next to them for 10 years. They don't even know that I go to church. What are they going to think about me? Do something scary for God. Go over and have that conversation that says, you know what, Josh, I, I, we've lived next to each other for 10 years and I need to tell you something that I probably should have told you 10 years ago. And it really, it's something that's one of the most important things in my life. And, and I, I believe in God, and I, I want you to come to church with me so you can understand more about what I believe. Is that easy? No, it's not. I, I don't know anybody who, who thinks that's easy, especially after living next to somebody for 10 years and you've never talked to them about it. But we want to overcome that fear. We have to start doing things that are risky, that are scary. Almost every decision, and I do say almost every decision that I've ever made out of fear has been the wrong decision. Some of you maybe are risk takers and some of you are the, the kid that climbs up to the top of the house and says, I'm going to jump off the house and see if I can, I can land it. And your fear has told you not to do that. That's allowing your fear to make you, help you make a good decision. But too often... If you're like me, my fear has caused me to make wrong decisions. If Gideon was in this situation, if Mary, if Moses, if these pillars of our faith were here, what decision would they make in this situation? 
in these moments, Gideon's obedience to God risked a very possible death. And, and not a die-in-your-sleep kind of death. We're talking about a drawn-and-quartered kind of death, a really gruesome death. And, and by doing this, Gideon was risking that. And yet, even though he's fearful, he does it. And then God begins to push Gideon even further. And in chapter 7, we see this amazing story where God says to Gideon, okay, now's the time. You're going to overthrow the Midianites. And to summarize the story, it goes like this. Gideon gathers all the mighty men of uh, the Israelites at that time, and it was roughly 32,000 men, which 32,000 going against a couple hundred thousand is, is a little overwhelming. And God says to Gideon, Gideon, that's too many. You need to whittle it down a little bit. So he goes to the men and he says, how many of you are afraid? 22,000 men raise their hands. And he sends home 94% of his force. And he's left with these 10,000 men. And God says, that's still too many. And then he does this really weird water drinking challenge. And he's left with 300 men to face a few hundred thousand. To put it into some sort of context today, that would be like if I put, I'm a coach, I'm a basketball coach for Blue Ridge High School and I coach the JV and varsity boys basketball team. It would be like me saying, I'm going to put out an all call. Any high school players who want to play, we are challenging the Binghamton Bearcats. We're going to play them in a game of basketball, winner take all. And I got all these guys together. And I began to whittle it down. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take the third string JV squad. And we're going to face those Binghamton Bearcats. That would be foolish. That would be a mockery. There would be no contest. But that's where Gideon finds himself. And God knows that Gideon is struggling. And so God tells Gideon, this is something that I think we overlook often if you're familiar with this story. God tells Gideon to do something that in and of itself is terrifying. He says, I want you to take your servant and I want you to sneak into their camp. So go into the lion's den, but listen. Because God had been causing the Midianites to have dreams and lots and lots of dreams about what was about to happen. And their dreams were really, really random but the result of the dreams, the interpretation of the dreams, Gideon climbs into the camp and hears this. In verse 14 of chapter 7, the Midianites des describing to each other, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. And so when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. This moment of fear that Gideon was in, he gets to the place where he is obedient to God and his response is worship. You see, worship helps us move from fear of man to faith in God. That's what worship does. Worship helps us. When we take our eyes off of our own problems and put our eyes on God, on the praise of God, our worry goes on life support. It's the beginning and end of worry and fear. This story starts with Gideon 
hiding, secretly working. But God talks to him and says, do not be afraid. He takes one step by destroying a statue of of another false god. And then he sneaks into a camp where he sees and hears about the power of who God is. And his response in that moment is worship. The dagger to worry is worship. In in the, the business world, there's many techniques to overcoming anxiety or worry. And, and it's kind of interesting because there's one that has become very popular, and it's a three-step process. And what's fascinating to me is it's written by a secular author, and yet every single one of those techniques is found in Scripture. So I say, why not understand and adapt these techniques so that we can overcome our worry, our anxiety, and our fear. And the first one, the first one is this. Schedule, the first technique that modern psychologists tell you to overcome your worry and fear is to schedule a time every day to worry. I'm only allowed to worry between 8.30 and 8.45 at night. If it's, if it's at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, not my time to worry yet. I'll worry about it later. You know, we might look at Scripture and we might say, schedule a time every day to pray. I'm going to pray. I don't know about you. I'm a creature of habit. I get up at 6 o'clock on the dot if my alarm goes off. Often I get up earlier. But 6 o'clock, I take my dogs out. I come back inside. I make the coffee. And I do my devotions. I pray. I do it every day because I'm a creature of habit. I schedule my time. So psychologists tell us to schedule our time to worry. So I would encourage you, schedule your time to take those worries to God. The second technique says only worry about things that are coming today. So if it's something that's going to affect you in the future, don't worry about it. Only worry about it when you get to that day. And when it's that day, when that event is that day. So if you've got that meeting next week, don't worry about it until you get to Tuesday when you actually have that meeting. Then on Tuesday, then you can worry about it. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If something isn't happening in your life today, don't worry about it. Don't worry about tomorrow. That's what Jesus tells us. You know, the procrastination is a bad thing, but in this case, procrastinate your worry. Don't worry about it. Just put it off until another day. And the third step that the psychologists give us in this new worrying management technique is to ask the question, is there anything I can do about it? Is there anything I can actually do about this problem? Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount saying, Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour of your life, hour to your life? So I would say to you, if there's something you can do about that situation, do it. Example, maybe some of you husbands are fearful because on the way to church this morning, you said something stupid. We all do it. 
It's okay. And your wife is so upset with you right now, and you're afraid. You're a smart man. Be afraid. And you're afraid to say those two words that no husband wants to say, I'm sorry. You could say, I'm stupid. That's also acceptable. But you're afraid to say, I'm sorry. If you can do something about it, do it. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Give it to God. See, that's what we're told to do all throughout the New Testament. All throughout Scripture, we're, we're told to cast all of our anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul tells us in Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving or with worship, present your requests to God. You want to overcome worry. You want to overcome those moments of anxiety and fear Put a dagger in the heart of that worry with thanksgiving, with worship. I don't know about you, but I love listening to Christian music. And, and I don't like to use stories about myself, but I have a friend of mine who, who, like, who throughout his week, he will have to face difficult conversations and he drives to different locations and he handles these moments uh, of stress and stressful situations. He works in human resources so if you work in human resources, you understand the difficulty. So he has made a mental note. Whenever he is driving to handle these situations, and if he just has the radio on with whatever it happens to be on, he said, those moments are more difficult. I don't know why. They, they just happen to be harder to work through. Uh, maybe uh, there's a number of reasons, but then he said, he said, you know, when I happen to be intentional about the music that I play on my radio with, with listening to Christian music, he says, in those moments, when I have those difficult conversations, they seem to go better. He says, I don't worry about the outcome. I don't, I'm not fearful of that interaction because I have given it in that moment to God. So here's Here's a challenge for you. You want to overcome worry. Start. Start by understanding who God says you are. And the second, the second is this, is that we do something scary for God. And as we do that, as we do that thing that's scary for God, we give those fears to God through thanksgiving, through worship. If you don't know where to start, we happen to have a slide that's going to appear behind me here. And the slide is going to be of our church's Spotify playlist. Now, a couple things to note. If you don't know what Spotify is, nothing I'm about to say is going to mean anything to you. So we're okay. I'm okay with that. You're okay with that. Ask somebody who has yet to experience 80% of their life choices, somebody who's under 35. And, and, and what we're going to do, this Spotify playlist is from our worship team. And our worship team has put together a list of the music that they play every Sunday morning. If you don't know where to start when you're listening to music, start here. Because this is going to lead you to those moments where you can put 
the dagger into your worry. your worry you want steps to do that schedule every day a time to take your worry to God only worry about things that are happening today because as Jesus said we don't need to worry about tomorrow and the third thing is with thanksgiving with worship let's give our worry to God